Shalom Aleichem, we're exploring the Sicha of volume 15, Lekutei Siches, the Sicha of Deach number three, regarding the prohibition of a Gentile observing Shabbos and what's the meaning of that prohibition. The Rebbe brings down from the Gemara, other sources, that is a that Akum Shabbos, a Gentile who observes Shabbos, it's a it's 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 not a mitzvah. It's actually a sin. It's it's considered a capital offense, which indicates that it's it's not their thing. In general, when Torah speaks of capital offense, uh, it means that this is contrary to your purpose, which parenthetically explains why capital offense is described many many times in Torah and also the Oral Torah many times in. Ethics of our fathers, Pirkei Avot, will tell us that if someone does this or that, they stop studying Torah and they uh, they admire nature. It's a capital offense, and clearly it doesn't mean in a legal sense, but it represents that it's contrary to the purpose of life, and therefore it's it's akin to to death itself. So it's a very big statement that a Gentile and Shabbos don't go hand in hand. It's a capital offense. It's contrary to who they are and to their purpose. Where is it derived from? It's derived from a verse in today's Torah portion, which is interesting. Shabbos wasn't even given yet. You would expect it to be derived from a verse in Exodus after the Torah was given. Hashem says, I want you to keep Shabbos. It's a covenant that I have between me and the Jewish people. Aha! If you come along and say, it's for Jews, it's not for Gentiles. In fact, there is such a source in the Medrash, another classic comment at Oral Torah, which does quote a verse from Exodus in the story of the manna where Moses tells the Jewish people in the name of Hashem, See that God is giving you the Shabbos. Says the Medrash, he's giving it to you and not to the Gentiles. That's where the Medrash derives this law that a Gentile should not rest on Shabbos. That makes sense. In Exodus, after Shabbos is given and is given to the Jews as a group. However, the Gemara, the Talmud, and the Medrash too, as an added source, will derive it from our Torah portion in Noah, post-flood. There's no Jewish people yet to speak of. There's no Shabbos to speak of. And where did they derive it from? They derive it from a verse that says, that nature should not cease, which is the same root as Shabbos. Yishposu, Shabbos, nature should not rest. Because after the flood, when God made the covenant, he'll never again destroy the world. God said that from now on, all the seasons will continue and day and night, and nature will run its course. By the flood, God did a reset. God, first of all, stopped the whole world. And the seasons throughout the entire period of the flood, which apparently lasted for, for, for a whole year, not just the 40 days and nights that were physically uh, flooding, but the whole year that they were in the ark. Apparently, it seems that, that nature didn't, there were no seasons. And the sun and the moon and the stars, the constellations, they weren't doing their job. Everything was on pause. And now, when God restarted the world, so to speak, God said to, uh, to, to God made a covenant that from now on, it's all systems go. Nature will run its course, and day and night, and Shabbos and weekday, and and months and seasons and years. This will never stop. There's no no more business of uh, interrupting the schedule. All of these will never cease. On that verse, says the Talmud and the Medrash. In the Medrash case, as a secondary source, uh, that uh, we derive that a, a, a Gentile is not supposed to rest on Shabbos. What's the connection? 
We're talking about nature not resting. What's the connection of a Gentile not resting? Now, according to some commentaries, like Rashi, who see the prohibition of a Gentile observing Shabbos, as the Torah simply wants them to keep working, they shouldn't really take any real breaks, doesn't mean they can't take a rest, but that they shouldn't stop being productive. So then we could fit it into the context of post-flood. How? Post-flood, God says, promises, and in a covenantial way, confirms that nature will continue to produce and will always be productive. All the sun, the moon, and the whole system, the seasons. So that includes the humans, because the humans are part of that food chain. They're also supposed to be continually productive, and therefore it would somehow fit contextually with this statement of Hashem. But according to Maimonides, and according to the Medrash itself, which over there it's clearly indicated that, no, that the reason for the, and the meaning of the prohibition against the non-Jews Shabbos observance is not so much that they should always be productive, but that they should not have the spiritual religious aspect of Shabbos or any day of the week as a Shabbos, but that's what's being proscribed from them. They're not allowed to have a holy day of abstention from nature. If that's the case, that's a religious conversation. It has nothing to do with the post-flood confirmation of Hashem that nature should continue to run its course. So how would we derive it from there? What's the connection? That's the first question of the Rebbe. Then the Rebbe asks a fundamental question. Why should the Gentile not keep Shabbos? Shabbos doesn't seem to be a uniquely Jewish thing. It's a universal thing. It's a commemoration of creation. And the fact that Hashem created the world and rested on the seventh day, reminding us that the world didn't come by itself, God forbid, but there's a creator, and therefore we have to serve him and, and, and believe in him, what have you. That's not just a Jewish thing. The Gentiles have to do it too. The first mitzvah, the seven mitzvahs of Noah, the universal mitzvah. It's for, it's for every person to know there's a creator. So why shouldn't they have Shabbos? If you tell me that a Gentile shouldn't have Pesach, it makes sense because they didn't have Exodus. Or Shavuos, it makes sense. They didn't have Sinai. But Shabbos, they don't have creation? Creation is a universal thing. These are the two questions that Rebbe poses about the relationship of Gentiles to Shabbos. A, why is that prohibition derived from the post-flood? It's seemingly not related to the subject matter of the post-flood. It's some kind of Shabbos holy, holiness matter. What's the connection here? And B, why, in fact, is it prohibited? So to introduce it, the Rebbe brings in a whole topic of understanding the meaning of the flood. I recommend let's minimize that window of those two questions. We'll get back to them at the end of the Sikha. But here's the body of the Sikha itself. What is the meaning of the flood? The Rebbe says, you know, um, it's a big question. Why did God decide to destroy the world with a flood, only to then make a vow that he'll never do it again? God don't make mistakes. God knows the future. So if he made a vow never to do it again because he doesn't like that idea, why did he do it in the first place? And if he did it in the first place because these people are sinners and wicked, they deserve it, so why did he vow not to do it, never to do it again? So clearly something changed in the interim. The world fundamentally changed, whereas pre-flood the world needed a flood, and deserved it, or what have you, it was the right thing to do. And post-flood, it will never again be needed. It will change fundamentally so that it will never again need a flood. What happened? So it, the Rebbe introduces the difference between pre-flood and post-flood by introducing a third step, and that's going to be the Sinai step. And that's going to be the makeup of the body of this sikha, the three phases, pre-flood, post-flood, 
and the Sinai era, beginning with Abraham and Sarah and leading up to Mount to Har Sinai to the beginning of the Torah. What is the significance of these three steps? Well, let's start with the Sinai. We know the purpose of Sinai is to connect heaven and earth, to connect God and the world. And that's why only after Sinai can the physical object with which we do a mitzvah literally become holy and divine. Pre-Sinai, we could just do holy things symbolically with the physical. But heaven is heaven, God's world, and earth is earth. Post-Sinai, you take a piece of animal hide and you write on it, and suddenly it's a holy object. It becomes a Torah scroll or a mezuzah or a tefillin, literally. And every time we do a mitzvah, we're literally touching the divine, etc. So that is the theme of Sinai, the breaking of that barrier and the marriage of heaven and earth of God and the world through the Jewish people. And uh, obviously a precursor to the ultimate unification of heaven and earth when it's completed through machine. We're trying to combine these two worlds. So to get to that third phase where those two are combined, we have first the first phase, which emphasizes the top-down uh, relationship. We have the second phase, which emphasizes the bottom-up relationship. And then we have Sinai, which brings the two of them together. What do I mean? That's the model of this conversation. Pre-flood, it's all top-down. It's all the world is operating under the impression of heaven. Post-flood, the world is operating under the impression of, of its own individuality, of earth. And then Sinai will marry the two. Now, why do we need these three steps? Why can't we just go straight to Sinai? So it's explained that by way of analogy, think about um, uh, parenting. So some people, let's say you're a very, very wealthy man. And your wish is for your child to live a comfortable life. And you have all the money in the world. You're Rockefeller. So you can gift your child access to the funds. And he or she will live happily ever after and live uh, in a lap of luxury. They got plenty. The second model is you may be Rockefeller, but you decide I'm not giving my kid access to the funds. No. I'd rather they develop their own skills. And they make it on their own. And I'll teach them a few skills. And then the child goes ahead and develops their skills and works and builds himself up and, and, and makes a life for themselves. Not a Rockefeller life, but a, a decent living. Just a, this is just a poor analogy. It's my own analogy, but I think it's very, very helpful and instructive here. I'm borrowing the analogy from analogies that are brought in the in Hasid. So, so, the first instance, the parent who's just giving him access to the funds, the kid's going to be living a much wealthier life because they have access to the giant funds. But they never become stable. And they're rich until they squander all their money and then they got none. Because they didn't learn how to replenish. And it never became them. In the second instance, they will never be Rockefeller, probably. Because not everyone becomes Rockefeller. They'll always be like mediocre. However, they will have achieved it, and therefore they're in good standing. If they have a bad day, if they lose some money in the stock market, they can rebuild. They have become firm. They have become established. They're not just living the good life by virtue of their parent or somebody else who is 
gifting them, who's giving them grace, who's gracing them with a free ride, with blessings. No, they have learned how to, how to live. And therefore, they may not be living on that high life, but they'll always be okay. Whereas the other student, child, the other kid, he'll probably live the high life for a while until he messes up something big and he'll probably become poverty stricken. Stricken. So this is a pretty decent analogy to what the Rebbe is trying to say. That the first thousand years of creation, pre-flood, Hashem gave the world abundance of divine energy and divine blessing. But the world didn't earn it in any which way. And therefore, on the one hand, there was tremendous blessing. People lived a thousand years. A thousand years. And why not? If you're living on the rich man's credit card, Hashem was shining his light. They lived for very, very long times. It was tremendous blessings. Whereas after the flood, God said, no, the world has to earn its own keep. So for the first thousand years, the world didn't deserve that blessing. It just got it for free. And, and, and whereas after the flood, the world deserved it. The world was refined. And that's what the mikvah accomplished. The flood was like a mikvah. The 40 days of the flood were like the 40 measurements of the mikvah, the 40 saw. And now the world is fundamentally changed. It's like in the analogy of the parent, he calls the kid back home. He takes away the credit card, the keys to the vault or whatever. And instead, immerses the child in the serious education. It's going to probably be hell for the kid. It's going to feel like he's being put through the flood of Noah. But you know what? In the end, he'll come out the better for it. He'll be a person. He'll be a mensch. He'll never be so rich. But he will be a mensch. So, says the Rebbe, take a look at pre-flood and post-flood. Pre-flood because it's a free ride. People live for a very long time. Tremendous blessing, but it doesn't. The blessing doesn't belong to the world. Therefore, the world is a very weak place in the sense that it could disappear, and it did. There were no guarantees. I like my analogy. It's a perfect analogy. It's a pretty good analogy. It's not perfect, but it's a pretty good analogy. Just like here, the kid has access to the to the riches, but it could disappear because he can squander it. He can make one bad mistake. He doesn't have the tools. He doesn't know what it means to to work a hard day. And therefore, he has riches until he doesn't. And that was the first thousand years of creation. The world was such a blessed place. But in and of itself, it was a very weak place. It was only blessed because of the benefactor, namely Hashem. But it was a weak place in the sense that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. It could disappear. There were no guarantees. And in fact, it did. The fact that it did shows that it could have at any time because it was coming from above. It was just by grace, by the good graces of the big daddy. Whereas after the flood, when he pulled the plug on the funds, and then the world now was refined and the world and nature, not only the people, but the world itself, by putting it in that proverbial mikvah, it now became solidified. It's a solid place. God says, it's, it's going to run its course. It will never falter. It will never be any surprises. You're not going to have changes in the seasons. There's going to be day. There's going to be night. There's going to be winter, summer, spring, fall. 
the sun will always rise in the east and, 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 and settle in the west. The world will run its course. Nature now came into its own, so to speak. Of course, we know it's run by Hashem every single second. But nature now came into its own. Uh, it's standing on its own feet. It, 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 it is a real thing. It's solid. So like that, like that child after the, the Rockefeller pulled the plug on the funds and put him into business school or whatever and trained him to make his own living. He's going to make a much lesser living, but it's going to be solid and predictable. It will always be there. Similarly, post-flood, we see those two sides. On the one hand, the blessings are a lot less. Nobody lived a thousand years. They were cut down to size right away. Hundreds of years less. They lived 500 years, 400, 300, and before you know it, life was reduced to 120 years, 180 years. That was the numbers of those days. So, so on the one hand, the, the, the riches, the blessing, the bounty went down. He's starting from scratch, starting in the mailroom. On the other hand, though, the, the, the world was a firm place, as evident in the fact the world can never again be destroyed till the end of time. God made a covenant. And what does it mean that God made a covenant? God strengthened the world to such a point that it will never change. It's indicated that it has the, the world will never cease to do its cycle. And that's an embodiment of the fact that Hashem never changes, so to speak. So Hashem gave the world, empowered the world, that the world itself should be a solid place. And it, it now becomes firm. And also morally, it was the same two sides, pre-flood, because the entire creation was just by grace of Hashem. The morality of the people and their identification with Hashem and with truth and with goodness was also by grace of Hashem. There were many righteous people. Everybody was righteous. They all were like probably prophets. Until they weren't. They did one sin, they sunk. There was no return. There was no possibility of chuba. There was no concept of chuba pre-flood. Because there was no spiritual immune system. God forbid without an immune system, a person can get a little cold, the tiniest thing. And it's just a matter of time and he's gone because there's, you might be very strong, but it's not, you are not strong. You happen to not be sick yet. So the person of pre-flood, because everything was by the bounty of Hashem, the blessings of life, and the awareness of Hashem, which is because of revelation. So you lived a thousand years, you were a prophet, you were holy, you were wonderful, until you expose yourself to sin, boom, you're done. And ultimately, the entire planet was sinners. Because why not? How not? Once Hashem immersed the world in the mikvah, in my foolish analogy, my little silly analogy, I pulled the plug on the funds and gave him, put him through the rigmarole of, 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 of business school, of refining the world, of fixing the world, or whatever it means, the time that he spent in the ark, where the world had to be purified and transformed. Now, the, there's no bounty coming from above so much. It, the world has taken shape. Nature has become confirmed. And morality has taken shape a little bit. The world doesn't mean we can never sin, but we can do tshuva. The world, humanity, just like nature, the physical nature became confirmed to run its course, humanity within nature get, gained some sense of character. 
but they they have a soul. They can they can be good. They can also be bad, but they can fix it. It's about them. It's the balls in their court. They can do good. They can mess up. They can mess up terribly. They can fix. They can be very very good. They can go up and down, but but it's about them. They are growing or falling or returning. Whereas pre flood did nothing to do with that. They were just spectators, enjoying the great show until they dropped the ball on it. So therefore, we now understand the two phases of pre-flood and post-flood. Pre-flood being top-down grace, bounty from the rich daddy. You got all this riches, but it has nothing to do with you really. And therefore, uh, whereas post-flood, it's bottom up. And hence the changes of these two phases. Whereas in the first one, people live for a very long time. But on the other hand, the world was a very insecure place. And we don't know what tomorrow could bring. Proof is that tomorrow, it did become totally wiped out. Post-flood, the people were not living so long at all. But conversely, it was a place that is secure. And the same thing is spiritually. Pre-flood, uh, they were they were very, very righteous and very holy so long as they, as they didn't fail once. But when they did fail once, they were done with. And therefore, there was no point in keeping them around. You had to transform the world through the mikvah and come to phase two. Where, where there's a concept of the spiritual immune system, etc., and teshuva. And therefore, that, and, and, and now the world is ready to run its course morally and physically. And these two phases are an introduction and a precursor to Sinai, which is phase three, which will be a combo, a marriage of these two, because that's what Hashem really wants. Ultimately, He wants to give us the full bounty, which you know, all comes to fruition when Mashiach comes, but it begins in a real way at Sinai. What is the bounty? Torah and mitzvahs, which is God's infinite wisdom and infinite holiness is infinity. But he gives it to people and he gives it to them in an integrated way where it's not just some big divine light, but it actually becomes part of our physicality. And that's why we see by Abraham and Sarah, Avram and Sarah, the first Jews who begin this process, leading up to Sinai as the first Jews, we see in the context of the earlier discussion of longevity versus lack thereof of the first two phases, what happened with Abraham and Sarah? They had a combination of those two formula. On the one hand, they did not have longevity as pre-flood. They lived 100, Abraham lived 175 years, Sarah even less, which was basically the normal lifespan post-flood. Conversely, though, when it came to childbirth, they gave birth at the age of 190, respectively, meaning the age of pre-flood. So these two opposites are really showing that they're an exact combination or an indication that they're an exact combination of the two eras. So this gives us a little bit of a model of what's going on. It's not just random, make a flood, then promise never to make a flood. No, there's a whole model. We're trying to lead up to that combination of heaven and earth. And therefore, we have phase one where heaven reigns supreme, phase two where earth reigns supreme, and phase three where they come together. It's manifest in the difference of longevity in the two in the first two phases, and with Avram and Sarah combining those two elements, as we just mentioned. It's also evident in the difference of the strength of the world in the first phase versus the second. The strength of nature and the strength of that of the, of the that nature will really stand. 
And it's also evident in the morality of the world. In the first phase, the morality is a very high level until someone does the first sin. In the second phase, the morality is, there's some sense of, of character and the world is starting to mature and the concept of teshuva and etc. This explains Now that we understand this model, so first of all, we answer our question, why Hashem decided to make a flood and then promised never to do it again. Because the world had to go through that process to come to that second phase and to be purified and to mature. So before it came to that second phase, it needed the flood. But after it came to that phase, it never needed it again. It doesn't need a flood. It just needs an opportunity to do Teshuvah. And it also explains why after God made that promise that he'll never again do it, is that's when he made a covenant that he'll never do it. He also vowed and, 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 and set into motion that the seasons will never falter. Nature will always run its course. Why so? Aha! Because nature now became a thing. Nature has matured. It's coming to itself. There is something called nature. The world is real. And if it's real, it'll do what it does. Day after day, year after year, season after season. It will never cease till the end of time. This also explains a very fascinating thing about the rainbow, which the rainbow, Torah says, is the sign of God's covenant that will never again destroy the world. And the Rebbe says that in many commentaries and, and sources, they discuss how can this be a covenant the rainbow is a natural phenomenon. If there's sunlight and it shines through the clouds in a certain fashion, you have the rainbow. So how can we say that this is a covenant that God made, a special sign? It's not a miraculous concept. That's a sign. It's a natural reality. And it must have existed seemingly before the flood. So what are you saying? No, it wasn't before the flood. It only came now. But it's natural. So what happened before the flood when the sun hit the clouds? How is this a sign? And that ever brings some sources that uh, the world was refined through the flood physically. And therefore, only post-flood will the clouds reflect the rainbow. Pre-flood, they won't. The, the sun hitting the clouds is very much analogous of Hashem's light and humanity. Exactly the model we're talking about. It's top-down and bottom-up. We're trying to connect heaven and earth. So the sun is analogous to Hashem. The verse says, God is compared as analogous to the sun, to the sunlight. It shines down its light. The clouds are analogous of, of human effort. The clouds come from the mist that rises up from the earth. And then the two merge and you create a rainbow. Pre-flood, there was no rainbow. And why not? Because those clouds were too coarse. They were too unrefined. Exactly like we said in the analog, that in the first era, pre-flood, while God's light was in abundance, in great abundance, almost limitless abundance, hence the great longevity, etc., the world was not refined at all. The world was just eating off the bounty. And therefore, in the analogy of the cloud, the cloud were physically not refined enough to reflect the sunlight and create some kind of prism of a, of, of, of a rainbow. It just bounced right off. Post-flood, where we say the world started to elevate itself physically in the rainbow 
relationship of the cloud to the sun. The cloud was purified enough and refined enough that when sunlight hit it, it would create a gorgeous rainbow. That was a physical change because the world was refined in all of its particles, including the clouds. And this is not just another particle, but it's a, it's a pivotal thing. It's reflected. It is indicative of man's relationship with Hashem, the world's relationship with its creator. The world was refined. The world was elevated. The world was solidified. The child went and got a job. So when the light shone, the world reflected a gorgeous rainbow. And therefore, if that's the case, the Rebbe is borrowing from these commentary and, and, and giving it further insight. That's the case. So it makes sense that there was no rainbow prior, and there is now, even though it's a natural phenomenon. Yeah, it's a natural phenomenon now that nature is refined. And therefore, it is a sign that God will never destroy the world, because why won't God destroy the world? Because the world doesn't need to be destroyed, because the world is refined. The world does have a spiritual immune system. It doesn't need to be destroyed. It just needs to give opportunity, to be given opportunity for Teshuvah, which it has been given. The worst sinner can return post-flood. Proof is, take a look at the rainbow. Look how refined nature is. Look how refined the bottom guy is, the little guy is, in that that cloud now reflects the sunlight. It's become refined, and therefore, there's no need for a flood, and therefore the rainbow is not just some magical sign, hey, God made a beautiful rainbow to say, I'll be a nice guy, I'll never kill you again. No, I'll never do it because there's no need. It's been accomplished. The world has been refined in a fundamental way that it is potentially capable of tshuva and of self-betterment. It has matured into itself in a way that it can always rise up again, and therefore there's no point in destruction. This explains also a separate concept, which I believe is brought in the footnotes. It is brought in the footnotes that there's a concept that uh, pre-flood, they weren't allowed to eat meat. They were all vegetarian. Post-flood, we were allowed to eat meat. Pre-flood, Adam and Eve were told you can eat vegetation. Post-flood, meat. Like, why is he giving them an, a, another diet? Why do they deserve a reward for destroying the world with their sins? So the Rebbe explains is a principle that Amaretz Asr Lachobasa, an ignoramus, a bore, a person who's not involved in Torah and in mitzvahs and in finer things, is not allowed to eat meat. And why not? Because what right do you have to take that other life and eat it? Only if you're a higher level person. And by, by, by eating the animal, you'll eat it and use it, its energy for mitzvahs and for higher things. You're actually doing the animal's spark a favor because you're elevating it. But that's only true if you're a high-level person. And that's why pre-flood, they weren't allowed to eat meat because they were the world was all low-level. Remember, whatever they had in terms of their bounty and their blessing and their spirituality was all gifted, but they were like rock bottom. So how could they eat meat? Post-flood, even if today they may be behaving rock bottom, but fundamentally the world has been refined. It's been stepped up a quantum notch of refinement. And therefore... The, the concept of meat was allowed because now there's some hope that we can elevate the meat and thereby we're elevating its sparks and thereby we're actually sort of have a right to do it and we're, we're, we're not doing the animal a disfavor in a sense. So this explains um, this, this explains uh, 
the the questions we had about the flood. A, why God made a flood and changed his mind, and B, uh, how the rainbow is a valid sign. C, why the world seems stronger and yet weaker post-flood, stronger that it's solid and predictable, and the seasons and everything, and weaker people live a lot shorter because of the shift of these steps. Phase one, top down, phase two, bottom up, phase three, the combination of both. And we also explained it in the context of the life of Avraham and Sarah, living shorter lives and yet giving birth at the age of the pre-flood, bringing home the combination of both. Now, let's come in for the home stretch. Now that we understand a little bit what the flood is about, and that there was those three phases, pre-flood, post-flood, leading up to Sinai, which is a combination of both those messages. Now let's talk about Shabbos. Shabbos was a gift that God embedded into creation, right at the beginning of creation, which is really a taste of heaven. Why so? God's creating the world in six days. He's giving, flowing the energy. Shabbos, he stops. Like, how could he? He's running the world. And the answer is because God wanted the world to have a taste of beyond world. In the language of the Talmud, it says when God finishes six days of creation, the world was complete. But no, God said there's something missing. And what is it missing? It's missing menucha. It's missing rest. What does it really mean? And Shabbos brought rest. What does it mean that rest? He brought rest. Rest is something that you bring. Rest is an absence of something. What it really means is rest here doesn't mean an absence of work. Rest means the world's purpose, the beyond the world, the divinity, the, the, the heaven. So if the purpose of the first two phases was to introduce heaven and then to introduce earth and then to combine them, Hashem laid the groundwork for that right at the beginning of creation. The six days of creation, he, he made earth, he made the world. On Shabbos, he introduced into the world the heaven. He introduced into earth also heaven, which that is what Shabbos is. It's not a day not to work. It's a day to experience rest, which really means serenity, purpose. It's been said that on, on the rest of the week, you, you do, and Shabbos, you are. It's about the beyond. It's about the purpose of it all. It's about Hashem. And therefore, really, you might say the six days of the week versus Shabbos, is heaven versus earth, earth versus heaven, etc. And therefore, Hashem put Shabbos into the story of creation to lay the groundwork for Sinai. But there's going to come a special people, the Jewish people, to create that bridge between heaven and earth, to create that bridge between those first two phases. And how will the Jewish people do it? Because Jewish people really are a shatchet. They're a matchmaker between heaven and earth because on the one hand, we have a body that's human. On the other hand, we have an Ashama that's literally divine. And we're able to bridge the both. And how do we experience, and, and ultimately, but how do we experience it and how do we are empowered to do it? Through Shabbos. With the six days of the week, we act like regular human beings. And on Shabbos, we like walk away from nature. We completely step away. Because the, the, our neshama, that part of us, is beyond nature. And in that way, we're bridging the two. Ultimately, what is Mashiach? It's the perfect Shabbos. 
And that's why a guy is not supposed to keep Shabbos. Because a guy is, is the human, the human being of nature. He's part of nature. And just like nature is supposed to continue doing what it's doing, uh, and, and nature is supposed to be strong and solid before we introduce the combination of heaven into the world, we need the world to be solid. The Gentile starts keeping Shabbos, not just that they're not working, but in the sense of the serenity, in the sense of removing themselves from physicality, that's not their goal. Then they're bringing into question the, solid, the solidification and the, and, and the maturity of nature, which is a very, very important post-flood. And now it makes perfect sense why that mitzvah, that prohibition is introduced post-flood. And as soon as the flood takes place, and now the world will graduate from just being a recipient of God's bounty, as it was pre-flood. But the world will now become a solid thing, and nature becomes solid and continuous and predictable. The nations of the world, other than the Jew, human beings, their job is to be part of that world and make sure the world is running strong, and not to run away from it, and not to become meditative and spiritual and, and otherworldly. They're supposed to be worldly, albeit with the faith in Hashem and the seven mitzvahs, but they're supposed to be worldly. They're supposed to be solidly rooted here on earth. Don't get too spiritual on us. That's not the goal of humanity. That's not the goal of the world. The goal of the world is to be a solid world, unchanged. Remember, that's the phase two. And that's why at that moment, God introduced that phase two and said, take a look what I did through the flood. The world is now a predictable, solid, cyclical place of, of, of seasons, etc., and cycles and systems. He says at that same moment to the nations, stay firmly rooted on that earth. Make sure the earth is solid. Make sure nature is solid. Make sure human beings are, are doing what they got to do to, to be part of that world in a meaningful, in a moral way, but very much part of that world. Don't let them run away to heaven. Don't start Shabbosing me. That's the that's contrary. That's like nature having occasional miracles popping up. That's contrary to that command that God said to the world, I want you to stick to your season. Do your job. Just be a world. Be a good world. Be a good Gentile. With the seven laws of Noah. But, but do your job. Don't try to become an angel army. Whereas a Jew, he has to toggle in both worlds. He's supposed to be very human. If he doesn't work during the six week days, it's a sin. It's considered to be a mitzvah to work six days, just like resting on Shabbos. Conversely, he's got to have Shabbos. We're supposed to be, I guess, a human and an angel. We're, our job is to be in both worlds, to be on earth and be in heaven. But that's our job. That's why we're a little bit shigat. Our, our, our very definition is a combination of opposites. But that's the Jewish condition. That's the Jewish contribution. We're the shatchet of Hashem in the world and because of who we are, because of our source and what have you. But for Gentile, it's the exact opposite of that purpose. Okay, if you look at the, the terms of uh, terms of takeaway, I mean, there's many, many takeaways in this sikha. One is that you see that life and death is all about purpose. I could be living a wonderful life, but if I'm not living my purpose, that's death. A Jew not keeping Shabbos, or conversely, a Gentile running to keep Shabbos, that's, that's death, it's not purpose. Also, by the way, you don't have to worry that your Christian neighbors or your Muslim neighbors who observe Sunday or Friday 
uh, are liable for death penalty because, to my understanding, they're not really keeping Shabbos in the spiritual sense. They're just taking it as a, they're not keeping the 39 laws. And therefore, it's not really such a problem, I think. I'm not sure. I think that uh, they're just uh, taking a day off. The problem is, according to the Sikha, the way we're understanding it, when they become too spiritual, when they start making it into a religious holy thing, I don't know, maybe they do call it a religious holy thing, but it, uh, just, uh, anyway. The other takeaway is that to understand the plan of the flood and its purpose, and therefore to understand the model of the Jewish people, and there's going to be numerous sikhs coming up in the same volume of the Kutu Sikhs, continuing that theme into the patriarchs, into the holy temples, etc. These three steps are from the top, from the bottom, and connecting them. And really, this is the Jewish condition, though, the value of Shabbos of connecting heaven and earth.